The Tentative Apologist Podcast. Time to think. Christians regularly talk about God's presence in space, but what do we mean when we use such language? I discuss this issue in the following passage on pages 22 and 23 of my 2009 book, Finding God in the Shack. Quote, If you go to church on a Sunday morning, you might hear the pastor address the hushed congregation with the words, The Lord is in this place. But what does that mean? That God is the is only in this place? Isn't he everywhere? Or one might hear the worship leader say, Lord, come into our presence. Come here as if God wasn't here already? Where is he coming from? If someone who had never heard of God before were to visit a church, he could easily think that God was a person, or three people, running around the world visiting different congregations. Okay, the Holy Spirit will be at Poughkeepsie Pentecostal Church for the 9 a.m. service. Jesus, you go to the Albuquerque Alliance Church for the 9.30, and we'll all meet up at St. Clair's for the 10 a.m. Mass." Unquote. Such a picture is absurd, of course. God doesn't move about in space. He's everywhere. A fact that the psalmist memorably conveys in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. The psalmist certainly does express the orthodox doctrine of divine omnipresence with eloquent poetry, but it still brings us back to the question, what does it mean to say that God is in the heavens and in the depths and everywhere in between? In this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast, we take on the question of divine omnipresence with theologian James Gordon. Dr. Gordon has his PhD from Wheaton College, where he is currently a guest professor of philosophy. He is also the author of the recently published book, The Holy One in Our Midst, an essay on the flesh of Christ. You can visit him online at www.jrgordon.me. In this conversation, Dr. Gordon brings his formidable skills in analytic philosophy to bear in understanding the complexity of that simple declaration, God is everywhere. James, great that you can join us to talk about divine omnipresence. And I guess that we can begin with a church on a Sunday morning. When you listen to pastors talk, let's say from the pulpit, they will say things like, you know, Lord, please come into this place. The Lord is now here. At least that's my tradition. I, I sort of came from a Pentecostal background. We talk a lot about God's being present in places. It's not just Pentecostals. We talk about holy places and thin places where God's presence seems to be. I've had many people talk about walking into a room and sensing God's presence. How do we then begin to make sense of that kind of language, presence and omnipresence, in light of the fact that God is a non-spatial being? Maybe let's begin with how have Christians often traditionally thought about it, and then what are some contemporary views and your view? That's sort of the trajectory we can go. So let's start off with the traditional view of omnipresence. Sure. Um, you know, the, the question you mentioned about the ecclesial context and the church confession that Christ is present, and the Spirit's present, 
and the Father's present by those two is really significant for me. And I think it's kind of the motivation behind me wanting to dig deeper into this because I, like you, feel I want to give an account of what it means when someone says, I sense God's presence in this place. I don't take that to be a, a meaningless statement, but I think it requires care and, and delineating. So throughout the tradition, um, especially uh, the two major accounts we find in Anselm and Aquinas, especially, at least how they've been typically read, there's some revisionist scholarship trying to question whether the historical readings have been correct. But primarily, the, the readings go something like this, that omnipresence is not a divine attribute in its own right, but is merely the extension of some other omni-attributes. God knowing all things, omniscience, and God being able causally to affect some change in all places. And that is traditionally how the concept of omnipresence has been thought of. Um, but in my estimation... So let's just back up. Yeah. So, so kind of like primary colors and secondary colors. You know, you can get all the secondary colors by combinations of the primary. And in this case, so God knows all true propositions and God has power over all states of affairs, something like that. It follows in that sense that God is omnipresent. Yeah, that since he knows what's going on at, at all these places, uh, he can choose to bring about some causal effect and, and act, so to speak, where he w wants to at any time. And this traditional reading, I think, makes sense given something like the doctrine of divine simplicity where you want to say there aren't all these distinct attributes in God, but in some sense they're all uh, an expression of the divine essence and notionally distinct or something like that. Um, not actually, you know, part of God is his knowledge and part of God is his ability to do things, but God is completely, as Thomas said, pure act. I was trying to give an account of that. Uh, I think that's what they were trying to, to do. Okay, so what do you think then of that, re I've heard you call that a reductive account, right? What do you think of that reductive account? Yeah, the, the motivation behind the project that I'm working on now is actually just to, be, uh, to say that these, as you mentioned, I called reductive accounts, um, fall short in giving what I take to be a biblical description of God's presence. Um, there's some significant things that scripture talks about with regard to the ways the triune God is present that merely causation accounts can't account for. Namely, God's being present to persons in specific ways, um, God's acting particularly at spatial locations and the idea of sacred space. Um, those tend to be problematic if we're excluding God wholly from space and time. Okay, could be, but, but why wouldn't someone just say, well, God can have power over certain effects in time that are brought about at a particular place to a particular person, and that's just what it is, again, for, that would come back to the reductive account. Why isn't that adequate? And, and maybe you know, give a, I don't know, uh, so someone walks into a church, they just sense an overwhelming presence there. All they're sensing is an effect that God brought about in space by his power, and that's all you need. Yeah. Um, so I think I would want to, first of all, go to Christology. And, and uh, in the paper that I gave here, I developed some uh, accounts from the Old Testament in particular with reference to the tabernacle and the temple. So we could talk about those as well. But I think the, the prominent example is that Jesus Christ, the Logos incarnate, is spatially located. Um, 
So we can't entirely say that God is outside of space. So in one sense, we've already sort of seeded the ground we are trying to hold to if we want to have a robust account of the Incarnation in order to talk about God being in space. So it seems to me that the, the primary problem with the reductive accounts, and, and I, I have lots of friends who hold to them, and I, I don't think that, um, I think they can do some good work and they conceptually can elaborate um, within, so Thomas, for example, taken as a whole in the context of what he's saying, divine powers doing more than what I think contemporary philosophers are reading him as. It has a theological background with reference to God's aseity and God's simplicity and God's works in the economy. Um, but the typical accounts miss, I think, the idea of actual space being sacred in a sense, more than just God acting at a distance somewhere. So the example of, for instance, um, the tabernacle with Israel uh, and the temple where we have the Holy of Holies and there's this space that the priest would uh, go through a ritual san <clears throat> ritual sanctification process so that he was able to enter this space uh, where they thought God really was, though that he wasn't in any way contained in that space or restricted by it, but God was really, really there. Um, so I think that the causal accounts they they have a at least it's my intuition that when I hear God knowing what's going on God causing something at a place that doesn't seem to me to be either personal presence which even some philosophers like Eleanor Stump have picked up and critiqued or it doesn't seem to me to be a robust notion of actually being present in the sense that we normally think of presence now you mentioned Eleanor Stump in her book Wandering in Darkness she develops this shared attention model where God can be present to people through shared attention. Uh, interestingly I'll just say that my dog and I have shared attention sometimes looking at the same dog biscuit. She'll look at me and start whining because she knows she thinks I want to eat that. Um, I don't present that as trivial to trivialize this concept but simply to show how I'm so bonded with my dog, yeah. <laughs> but 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 let's talk about Eleanor Stump's uh, illustration, and and is that adequate? Which I presume you think it isn't, but does it bring us at least part of the way? Yeah, I think it it, it marks a significant improvement um, on these mere causality and omniscience accounts, the reductive views, in that she's really trying to account for this serious way that God is present to persons. And if you think about it, I mean, you and your dog. Uh, you and God in church, there, this has some explanatory value. So suppose you're going through an intense moment of suffering, um, and on the one hand, if you're a fan of just the causal accounts, well, you have to account for how God's not actually doing that suffering, which is a whole, uh, causing that suffering to come about, which is a whole another issue. But on the shared attention account, you could say that God knows what's going on, and it's not just that he is going to act in some way to remedy your situation, but that in his attention is actually focused on the problem that you're having. So it seems to me that it has pastoral ramifications, and I take it that in Stump's account uh, in Wandering in Darkness, that's it's doing some work there to try to, to bulk up, I suppose, the kinds of what have been criticized as cold static, although they're not static, really, but the cold categories that God just kind of is a a big man in the sky acting in certain places. Yeah. Now one simple way to, to view God as omnipresent is to view God as finely distributed throughout space, spatially. 
maybe he's a gas uh, or maybe panentheism that's a very popular view so the world as God's body in some way what do you think about accounts of spatial extension like those yeah um, some of the theologians that I've read a lot um, so for example Friedrich Schleiermacher um, he doesn't buy into spatial extension but he takes panentheism in fact the term panentheism is kind of uh, created in some sense for the kind of thing he's doing so he's sort of a classic panentheist so um, I understand that those have a lot of explanatory power but my concern is to work within at least for the most part classical Christian categories of divine presence so what that would mean for these two accounts in particular of God being uh, diffused through space or God uh, panentheism is if God were diffused through space, it would seem that God has parts, that part of him is, say, in my home at Wheaton, and part of God is here in Atlanta, but God isn't holy in any of those places. Uh, that seems to me problematic on the classical notion of something like divine simplicity, where wherever we say God is acting, God is acting there holy. Wherever God is located, God is located there holy. So, and holy, we mean W H. Yes, yes, yes okay. not <laughs> he is holy in the places that he's located as holy, but yeah, we mean W H. So, so the diffused model, and this is what philosophers today in, in metaphysics of spatial location are calling pertension, and this is the idea that at any place an object is located, it has parts distributed across that location. So it's hard to account for how a simple God could possibly be diffused through space. So that's the reason I reject that. So to use that word, we are pretensed, would, would that make sense? Yeah, or we are pretended. We are pretend, pretended, not pretended. We're yeah. pretended, meaning we have parts extended in right. space. Yeah, our bodies pretend. So the scholastics uh, in the post-Reformation have some different categories to make sense of these. They talk about the differences between definitive presence, replative presence, and circumscriptive presence. So you and I, having bodies sitting here located in certain places, there's no sort of, it's very clear where my body ends and your body begins. And that's the notion of circumscriptive presence. We have boundaries that mark out our locations. Angels and other immaterial beings, the scholastics said, they don't have those bodies, but they're not omnipresent like God, so they're definitively present. They have boundaries, but they're not marked out spatially. God, on the other hand, is replatively present. He has no spatial boundaries, so he exists at all places, replatively, in the wholeness of his being. So I'm trying to give an account of that in language that makes more sense of contemporary categories of spatial location today. Well, before we talk more about God, let's back up a minute because we have, you mentioned human beings circumscriptively. Yeah. Is that right? right? And then we have angels. But what about the human soul for a dualist? Uh, is, the, is the human soul, I, it's clearly somehow linked to the body, assuming dualism but is it extended throughout the body? I think when you talk to people a lot, there, there's a conception of the soul as a ghostly presence that looks like the body and kind of rises up out of the body when a person dies. So is the soul just distributed throughout the body? Is, is the soul connected to a point of the body but has itself no extension? Yeah. Um, if, if you're wanting to go in a, a dualist uh, route for the human person, 
one way to talk about souls would obviously souls don't have parts they're simple so they couldn't pretend they couldn't be distributed throughout your body but the other category would be to say that they intend um, that they're they don't have any spatial extension they have no parts but they exist wholly in the region that they exist which is your body so we can, this is the account that I will develop in, in ways that we talk about God's omnipresence, but rather than God, who's wholly located all these places, souls that would just be entirely contained within your actual physical body. Um, they intend the region that is circumscribed by your physica physicality. Now, this leads to some problems though. So suppose your arm gets cut off, do you lose a part of your soul? Well, the way I would say we can get around that is by saying the souls don't have any parts. Um, it's still there wholly the way that it is, but it's not like you lost a part of you because you lost your, your arm or something like that. Of course, we're always turning over the matter in our body. <laughs> what about dandruff? <laughs> is dandruff a little bit of your soul yeah. falling away? I also, I don't want to get off track here, but there are these little creatures, demodex, that live on everyone's foreheads, uh. and they're they're microscopic. But if if you get a rash because you haven't washed your head your forehead for a few days, it's because of an allergic reaction hmm. to the buildup of their secretions. Just so you know. Nice. So so I, I always wonder about the extent to which our bodies are living systems themselves of different creatures and how that all figures into dualism. But that's an aside. Yeah. So, so it's possible that that we could think analogously of our souls as intended, yeah. relative to our bodies or something like that, which is something like this God-world relation. But let's then steer back to the God-world relation, yeah. knowing that there is a possible analogy here. So, yeah. say more about how you understand this model with respect to God and space. Yeah, I, I recognize I didn't I didn't answer your question about panentheism earlier, so I should mention sure. something about that briefly. Um, so I take it that one of panentheism's key features is that in some, in some strong way creation is necessary for God. If, if it's his, God's body and God wouldn't have fullness of being without it, then it's required that God would create. That's not the case with the classical Christian doctrine. Creation was taken to be a free act or um, an act that was gratuitous in some sense. Or another possibility is a developmental model. Not that creation is necessary, but that when God does create, he gains a body, he grows, he changes. Yeah, th that's right. And that would have, again, as I mentioned, trying to work in the bounds of classical theism, that compromises on immutability, yeah. which is another issue that's tangentially related to, to what I'm doing. But in order to secure uh, God's freedom over and above creation and not being bound by it, as in something like panentheism, even on the growing model. Um, the classical tradition has said that omnipresence is not an essential divine attribute. Omnipresence is the thing God has by virtue of the fact that he's chosen to create. It's a relative attribute. That's right. Yeah. Relative to creation, God is omnipresent, but yeah. apart from creation, he's not. So prior to, or however we want to conceive of that, prior to creation, God is what we would call immense. He has no boundaries. His um, the plenitude of his being is un, un, unbounded, really. Uh, so when when God chooses to create, he's present to all spaces as a function of the fact that he's already in himself 
an immense being with no boundaries. So that secures God's freedom uh, that he doesn't have to be related to space, but chooses to be for us and for our salvation. I, I just think about what if a multiverse is, is, uh, exists, so then God is... See, this is one of the things, again, of does this lead to a developmental picture where you've already said God is immense, apart from any creation, but is God even more omnipresent? Is he greater, the bigger the universe, or the, the bigger the cosmos apart from him that he created? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I think the tradition in, in affirming the doctrine creatio ex nihilo would want to affirm that all things have their foundation in God's creative act. However we want to understand that and parse it out, um, that the fact that God can um, be located at more places if the multiverse grows uh, is only a function of the fact that he already is sort of the precondition of the existence of all space. So I don't take that to be any uh, any objection that God grows in a sense, um, at least in his being. So, so let's bring things uh, together. You, you're affirming God is all-knowing and all-powerful, so you've accepted the reductive account at the baseline. You add on to that something, uh, agreement with Eleanor Stump's shared attention model, but you say, let's even go further than that, and let's also say that God is present to space, but he's not present to space in terms of having parts in particular places, as in the pretension uh, concept, but rather <coughs> God is wholly present to all space. How do we understand that idea that God is wholly present here, as you said, in Atlanta, but also back home for you in Wheaton? Yeah, uh, so there's some recent work that's been done that's trying to sort of move the opposite way of these reductive accounts. And I, I call the reductive accounts in Eleanor Stump's shared attention account non-occupation accounts. And this is following the work of Hud Hudson and Alexander Proust, who say that insofar as God does not occupy spaces, he's outside of space, and therefore these non-occupation accounts try to account for his relation to space, even though he doesn't occupy spaces. The newer models, like Hudson and Proust, are trying to locate God in space, but this has the undesirable uh, entailment that God ends up being a material object. So I'm wanting to, de to develop an account that avoids that, that talks about using their categories, but talking about God as an immaterial object, and an immaterial object that can interact with space. Now, how we understand God as being wholly located in all places, it's just as challenging as understanding anything else in theology exhaustively. It's hard to know what that does mean other than um, where God is located, which is at all places. We understand that there's, he's, not, he's not spread out. There's not part of him here, part of him there. Um, so I don't take the account I'm giving to be an explanation of um, the physical properties of how God is related in like a, a, a hyperspace to the universe or something like that. But I do take it to be theologically explanatory in giving a satisfactory account of God's presence vis-a-vis -vis his being and also contemporary theories that are gaining some ground in analytic philosophy. Just a thought comes to mind coming back to the relationship between soul and body and the human being. You said, well, you wouldn't lose part of your soul 
if your arm was removed or if, if one had dandruff or whatever else. But there, there is this uh, sense that this, the soul, if dualism is true, the soul is somehow closer to the brain than to the, the rest of the body. That there's a sense of persistence through time that if you lose your brain, you lose your person. Or if you lose your head, you lose your person, but not your arm. So that, so even if the soul is is all throughout the body, wholly present to the entire body, it's in a sense more essentially connected to one part than the other. And if that is true, and maybe you're going to disagree with that, but if that's true, then if we think analogously back to God in creation, if God is wholly present to all of creation, but is there a sense where God is more present to part of creation? In fact, even tie that in, I'm just off the cuff here, to areas like Israel or the temple, is there a sense where God's presence is somehow more in some places than others? Yeah, the soul thing is challenging. This is again uh, where I think we were running into explanatory limits. Even, and this is one, one in contemporary science, soul is almost unanimously rejected because we can't explain that causal link. It can't be found how it could be possible for a physical thing to have immaterial consequences, causality. But I don't take that to be a very strong argument against the notion of a soul. I think that we would want to give a more detailed account. So in the same way, I would analogously argue, like, just because we can't explain what it is for God to be present in all places doesn't necessarily count as a, a check mark in the box against this argument. But in thinking of God being more present in more places, this is where I would want to do two things. The first is to and, and to be to be clear, any account of God's omnipresence has to deal with this. How can God act more at one place and another place if he's already everywhere? In the causal account, it would be he knows it's going on everywhere. And in some sense, by virtue of sustaining the universe, he's already acting at all places in some way, but then can act particularly. So it's, a, it's not just an account for a problem for my account. But I think my account does have an explanation. And the way I would go about doing this is, first of all, by looking at phenomenology, understanding that a lot of the ways that we talk about God's presence, so I sense God in this place, is not that God is doing something more than he already was doing there, but that we're related to his presence in the right way. Now, some people might object and say, so now we're sort of reducing our experience of God merely to human categories, and this is sort of the error of someone like Schleiermacher of making theology all about anthropology. In fact, nothing more than anthropology. I take it that, first of all, it's not the reading of Schleiermacher that I've defended elsewhere and that I buy into. But secondly, I think that given some recent work on pneumatology, I'm thinking particularly of the work of Kevin Hector, who has spoken of God-ordained natural acts that are such that the spirit acts within those. So, for instance, when we hear that the Bible says that when two or three are gathered, there am I in their midst, we can understand that as when we gather at church, for instance, it's proper to say that God is present here in a particular way, namely through our actions that are turning our, our own self-conscious, our, our own intentions towards God, and understanding it to be us being properly related to what's already there. Okay. How does uh, your view affect something like the Eucharist? 
very practical question here. Yeah, this is a, this is a really great question. So I'm an Anglican, so we believe that Christ is somehow really present in the Eucharist. Um, the way I, I account for this is to think of uh, the particular act that the priest is doing as some kind of speech act, some kind of way that um, speech acts have locutions, illocutions, and perlocutions, and each of these three dynamics... Can you just define those for yeah. listeners? So the, the locution, for instance, uh, are the actual words that I'm uttering. This coffee is hot. Um, the uh, illocution, if I exclaim, this coffee is hot, may be, it's burning my hands, please take it or give me a, a sleeve to put it in. There's, there's an intent behind what mm-hmm. I'm saying. It's not merely the words. That's the direction that your language is going. That's right. And then the perlocution is how it's received then. So perhaps you hearing me exclaim my coffee is hot would do your best to remove it from my hands so that I don't burn myself mm-hmm. or, or provide me with a sleeve or something like that. It's, it's the way the, the words spoken are received by the hearer. So in this way, we can account for, for instance, it matters that the priest says, this is my body, when he uh, breaks the bread. The reason is this is repeating the kinds of things that Jesus said. It's, or, or uh, if, you know, I'm from a Baptist tradition originally that spoke of these as ordinances. And while I, I think um, sacrament is a better way to go with them, I do think that they're, they're ordained for a particular reason to to that God has chosen that he will act in these particular ways. So the priest says, this is my body, and in, has an intention with this. Um, I, I gave the example to someone I was talking about this the other day. So imagine I had um, some people over for a Halloween party, and I made a punch that looked like blood. And I repeated those words that the priest will say, this is my blood. Well, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Does, does this mean that in some sense I'm... If, if all we say is that all that matters is saying particular words and then it sort of is really Christ's body, is then anyone who drinks the blood punch at my party drinking the blood of Christ in the same way they would in the Eucharistic ceremony? And here I think is where we can talk about the illocutions and the perlocutions of an act. I'm not intending in any way to say that this is Christ's body by, or Christ's blood by saying this is my blood or whatever in the punch. Um, so when the priest says that there's something particular about that act that instantiates the way that we're related to God in this particular act that he's ordained. But then it's also not just an intentionality, but uh, the way it's received by us. We take it to be the case that it's Christ's body. Now, some might worry that this is a minimal account of God's presence there and would say, so you're saying that Christ isn't really present there. And I would say, no, I'm not saying that. In fact, Christ already is present there. Present there, really, and as strongly as it could be. And by the Spirit, by the way that God has ordained these acts, we're able to access that presence, especially at a particular time. So the phenomenology supplemented with this account of our reception and the way that acts work, speech acts, uh, give us an account that I think is pretty compelling. It's not magical in that we don't have transubstantiation or something changing, but it's also not merely a social activity. It's God's Spirit taking up social activities in a God-ordained way to really be God's acts. 
and I'll just speak as a Baptist now, Baptists of course often have worried in the past about particular speculative, as they see it, views of the Eucharist and sort of magical views. And this could offer, because I'll say as well that on the other hand, just speaking only in the very reductive terms of Baptists, I think there's a lot of weaknesses there. This could offer me a, 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 a middle road for, for Baptists maybe to think about it. So it's a good ecumenical alternative. So thank you very much, James, for a very penetrating discussion and showing how quite abstract concepts can also have very practical theological implications. Yeah, thanks for your time, Randall. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast. For more episodes of the podcast, you can visit us online at randallrouser.com.